in our second eschatology Sunday school lesson this morning, we're considering the Olivet Discourse. Olivet just means olives, right? He's, Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives and talking. The Olivet Discourse. It's 31 verses of text in Luke's Gospel. And the, it's the last things portion of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it's Matthew 24, 25, Luke 21, Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse. We are working through a massive allotment of text, so today's class may have a bit of a hectic feel to it. Uh, and just to add to the fun, this is arguably the most debated text in Luke's Gospel, if not the whole New Testament. Uh, but I believe what makes things a bit easier for us is that Jesus has a one-track mind in this discourse. Look at the big picture. Luke records Jesus' lengthy discourse on a pair of related events. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and the Lord's return. Luke focuses on the destruction of Jerusalem with more intensity than do Matthew or Mark. Luke covers both events because for Jesus, the destruction of Jerusalem is like the last day when Jesus returns. How then are we to live? We must watch and be ready. We are to live soberly and pray for strength to endure so as to be able to stand before the Son of Man on the final day. So if we just, if we just keep that big picture sort of as our interpretive pole star, we're not going to go too far wrong. Uh, but before we jump into the deep end, it's important we need to get our overall bearings of where we are. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 21. That's the last passage in Luke's gospel before Judas agrees to betray Jesus, uh, before our Lord's agony in the garden, and before his arrest and trial and crucifixion, which means we're coming now to events which to a careless reader could appear to, oh, Jesus looks powerless. He looks weak. Uh, he is the pawn of forces over which he has no control. You could think that, perhaps. This chapter clearly tells us, no, Jesus is in perfect control. The divinely preordained route to his sovereign throne is via the cross. And Jesus knows the future, and what's more, he controls the future. He is not weak. He is not powerless. And all the wars, all the messianic pretenders, the many antichrists, all the earthquakes and social chaos, including the dreadful fall of Jerusalem, all the persecution of Christians over the age of the church, none of it takes God by surprise. Neither should we be surprised. Jesus has told us ahead of time what the last days will be like and how we're to await his return in this inter-advental period. I'm going to use that phrase a lot. Advent means the coming of the Lord, so it just means coming. So there's the first advent and there's the second advent. In between, it's been 2,000 years so far, it's just called the inter-advental period. So let's begin with some questions concerning the temple's demise in, in uh, Luke 21, verse 5. We're just going to work our way through this text. It's going to be very kind of biblical, theological. Here's what Luke says. <clears throat> some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. And this temple, of course, whose temple is this? What's its name? No. Oh. It's Herod's temple. It's called Herod's temple. When they speak of second temple Judaism, this is the second temple. The first one was destroyed, right, in 586. Um, Herod's temple was a massive building. It had a 35-acre enclosure that could accommodate 12 football fields. And, and there were stones there that weighed over 1 million pounds. Uh, it was a vast, stupendous complex. And this, obviously, was the very center. This was the heart of Jewish worship of Yahweh. This is where atonement for sin was made. This is the only place in the world where God's special revelatory presence dwelt among his people, above the ark, above the lid of the ark of the covenant in the Holy of Holies. 
This temple is the premier symbol that Jews were in a covenant relationship with the living God. But the temple was not fulfilling its God-ordained role as a witness to the nations. It had become instead the premier symbol of a superstitious belief that God would rally and protect his people irrespective of their conformity to his will. Verse 6, But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And, and that, of course, to hear that, that would be a scandalous piece of news to a Jew, obviously. If what Jesus predicts in verse 6 actually came to pass, it would change everything, everything that Jews knew about worshipping God. God is worshipped in the temple. That's where he dwells. Old covenant worship of God was geographically confined. That's a very important thing to understand. There's, there are covenantal implications if God's temple is destroyed. Verse 7, teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? The disciples asked for some sure sign by which they might know the destruction of the temple is about to occur. And he gives it a definitive sign. Do you you recall what that sign might be? We'll come to it. It's in the text. It's a tricky question. There is a definitive sign that the destruction is about to occur. It's when the Roman armies... Start surrounding Jerusalem. That's the sign. But their question in Luke's gospel seems to be tied to the, the series of events preceding the temple's destruction in AD 70 and not the events associated with the end of human history. But listen to Matthew's parallel account. Matthew 24, 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse, right? The disciples came to him privately. Tell us, I said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. In Matthew's gospel, it's all one package in the disciples' thinking. It's one complex of events. And Jesus, it seems to be, answers their question in Luke's gospel with that same assumption in mind. He expands. He elaborates. So I could do a Sunday school class on Luke 21. I could do a Sunday Sunday school class on Mark 13 or Matthew 24 and 25. It would be slightly different each way I do it, but it's the same thing, basically, all right? But there are just certain emphases that Luke's bringing out here that Matthew does not or Mark does not. But uh, how he does this, how he expands on this assumption is he links the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, we're going to talk about that a lot today, with the time of his second coming, the ultimate end of the age. He links these things because to Jesus' mind, to his thinking, uh, these these are sort of two mirror events. The destruction of Jerusalem is like the end time. Okay, does that make sense? Right, so I, I think that's the interpretive key to the whole thing here in Luke 21. And he really goes hammer and tongs about AD 70, more so than Matthew does, or more so than Mark does. Um, It's why Jesus can speak about the short-term fulfillment or the long-term fulfillment, or both at the same time in different portions of the same speech. It's because the two events mirror each other, AD 70 and the end of the age. Which means the nation of Israel is headed for dreadful times. Her rejection of Jesus the Messiah, which culminates in his murder, will be painful and it will be costly. Jesus has already talked about this back in chapter 19. Maybe you should just turn there. Chapter 19 in Luke's Gospel, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. He wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. 
The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. (laughs) It's very explicit. Luke 21 is an elaboration on this same theme. Now, look with me at the second point in your handout. Both the time before Jerusalem's destruction in AD 70 and before the ultimate end when Jesus returns is characterized by false messiahs, international rivalry, social chaos, natural disasters, persecution, and faithful Christian witness. But the end will not come right away. He's talking about the interadvental period, right? And I'm going to go very rapidly through this section, but just before I do, any questions? How are we doing? You good? All right. Verse 8, he replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. Who are these people? They're false messiahs. They're false Christs. And they propagate false claims made in his name. The time is near. And Jesus' first warning is that messianic pretenders, I would, I would argue that John, 1 John, calls these guys antichrists. Many antichrists have come, right? They are going to abound in his inaugurated kingdom. Watch out that you're not deceived. And this isn't a new teaching. Jesus has already told his disciples back in chapter 17, verses 22 to 25, that his return will be visible to all. I'll just read that text. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Or Matthew's parallel account in chapter 24, verse 23. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah. There he is. Do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. Christian, watch out that no one deceives you. People will appear who, if possible, could deceive even the very elect of God. And I can't imagine a more serious warning to be very, very careful about the theological books that we read or the blogs we read or the churches we join or the seminaries that we attend, the pastors and podcasts we listen to. Everything and everyone must be tested by the Word of God. There are now, and there have been, and there will be false teachers who seek to domesticate the scriptures by pandering to the agendas of the culture. And the history of the church in this inter-advental period is one of continuous, persistent battle against false teachers and their teachings which deceive. So be on your guard. Jesus has warned you ahead of time, all of us, his church. But it's not a sign that the end is nigh. Secondly, both the time before Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD and before the ultimate end when Jesus returns is characterized by, verses 18 to 19, international rivalry and social chaos. So one thing that characterizes it, false teaching, false messiahs. The second one, international rivalry, social chaos. This characterizes the inter period, but the end is not yet. 
That's what he's arguing for, okay? Verse 9. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So don't be frightened then by uh, wars and uprising. When the disciples hear of wars and chaos, they still, they're still not to be alarmed. Such events must happen first. But even with these events present, the end does not follow immediately, either in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 or the ultimate end when Jesus returns. Again, he's linking those things, which means uh, if a terrorist group ever detonates a dirty bomb downtown Toronto or North Korea, nukes South Korea or Japan and the United States retaliates in kind or Ukraine and Russia just goes spiraling out of control, those events would be nothing out of the ordinary. Uh, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. 80 million dead in World War II. 80 million. It's, it's pretty hard to beat that in terms of just out-and-out devastation. 80 million. But even so, the end was not yet. Even though all sorts of Christians thought Hitler was the Antichrist and Mussolini was his prophet. And the picture continues to expand. Beyond false claims about Messiah, Antichrist, sees the language of 1 John, and social chaos, a third class of signs are not the end. These are more sort of like non-signs. These are physical signs in the universe, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, and other terrors and signs from heaven. Verse 11, there will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Daryl Bach writes, the picture is of a natural tragedy and physical disturbances on all sides. Uh, when, with these are heavenly cosmic displays, perhaps shooting stars that draw the attention of people, causing them to speculate about what is happening. And when placed alongside the other signs that Jesus mentions in Luke 27, 7 to 11, a portrait emerges of a world in great chaos. However, the chaos itself is not a sign of the end. Which means for us, brothers and sisters, we mustn't look at a tsunami in Japan or an Ebola outbreak in Liberia, famine in Ethiopia, or a hurricane hitting the Carolinas and invest any of those events with an eschatological significance pretending at any second now, return of Jesus Christ. Right? Honestly, the, the, along the San, San Andreas Fault, California could just slide into the ocean. It doesn't necessarily mean Jesus Christ is returning any second. You know that's going to be said a lot, though, if that ever were to happen. Um, Mount Vesuvius erupts, right, and destroys Pompeii. People in that time were thinking Jesus could return any second. No, he said it's not going to be that. It's actually the exact opposite. You can expect this during the interadvental period. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. So do you see, part of the function of this text, the Olivet Discourse in general, is to warn Christians against false expectations of Jesus' early return. Both the time before Jerusalem's destruction in AD 70 and before the ultimate end when Jesus returns is characterized. It's characterized by false messiahs, international rivalry and social chaos, natural disasters, persecution and faithful Christian witness. But the end will not come right away. But then Jesus zooms in on the short term. But before all of this, so Jesus is talking to the disciples about what's going to happen in the next months and years, right? But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. 
And so you will bear testimony to me. What's going to happen to Jesus' apostles? Enemies will seize them. They will be persecuted. They will be imprisoned. And some of this persecution is going to come from Judaism because the disciples will have to give a defense in synagogues. But because of that persecution, there will be opportunity to testify before kings and governors. That's all part of God's sovereign plan. Uh, For example, the Apostle Paul, he testified before Herod Agrippa, Felix, Festus, and even Caesar himself. And notice, all this persecution is religiously directed. It all takes place on account of Jesus' name. Verse 14, but make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. In fact, we have many of their Holy Spirit-inspired words and God-given wisdom recorded in the book of Acts, don't we? And that's part two of Luke's two-volume account. And so he's expecting his readers to remember this when they come to the book of Acts and say, aha, that's Luke 21 fulfilled. I'm seeing it right there. He's expecting that. Verse 16, you will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a head A hair of your head will perish. That is, perish eternally. Stand firm, and you will win life, eternal life. Now, as Christians living in 2023, as Canadian Christians, it's quite easy for us to read our own present religious context of all the freedoms that we enjoy now into this text. Because despite everything you might be hearing from certain Christian quarters, we've got it really good here in Canada. Uh, So it's easy for us to read our own present religious freedoms into this text and just assume this text is referring to the first century exclusively, or perhaps, depending on our eschatology, exclusively to the final tribulation as the culminating antichrist figure, the man of lawlessness, wars against the people of God. But this spiritual conflict, opposition, persecution has been faced countless times in the past by God's people and is now being faced by millions of our brothers and sisters all over the world. How do you think our brothers and sisters in North Korea or Saudi Arabia or Pakistan read a text like this? Right? They're living it now. They're living it now. 2 Timothy 3.12 Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Who are the most persecuted people in the world? Most people in the West might be surprised by the answer to that question. According to the International Society for Human Rights, a secular group which, with members in 38 states worldwide, 80% of all acts of religious discrimination in the world today are directed at Christians. 80%. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity in the United States estimates that 100,000 Christians now die every year targeted because of their faith. That's 11 every hour. The Pew Research Center says that Christians face some form of discrimination in 139 countries, almost three quarters of the world's nations. The plain fact is that more Christians died for their faith in the 20th century than all the other centuries combined. Revelation 12, 12. Woe to the earth and to the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. 
And that is why Jesus is exhorting the disciples to spiritual preparedness. Tribulation and persecution characterizes the entire inter-Advental period. And we must stand firm to the trials coming our way. Jesus is saying, be ready. I warned you. Expect it. It's coming. We live in a blip of geographical and historical anomaly of history, I guess, in a way, as Canadians living in the world we do today. It's unbelievable. (laughs) Um, Be ready. Strap on your spiritual armor. And I'll say this. Our brothers and sisters living in countries where there is government-sponsored or government-tolerated persecution, they aren't shocked. They aren't shocked when the doors are kicked open by the police and they're thrown into prison. They're not wailing. How can this possibly, possibly happen? Isn't Jesus reigning on his throne? They can't afford to be so biblically naive. Not in that kind of environment. They understand this text. And their prayer is, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We need to take a page from their book, beloved. And then Jesus gives us this dreadful mirror image. An image that's so far uh, been separated by two millennia. Three in your handout. A picture of the end, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So before I jump into it, anything I just kind of clarify without getting into the nitty gritty of some eschatological system. Okay. Uh, just in the yeah, previous part where it talks about synagogues and prisons, so are you, you're saying that's for the whole time? No, I'm saying that's in the present... Be, it, actually before 70 AD. Oh, this part here is just 70, before 70 AD. When he's saying it's going to go into the prisons, and then he says, then it can expand beyond that too. It characterizes the whole interadventure period as you look at, uh, you know, Matthew for sure, Mark. But I think if Luke's drawing in here, it's going to be synagogues, Jews. Just before 70. 70 AD, yes. Oh. Yep. yep. Um, it seems to me that 10 and 12 is supposed to have something happening after this, that period of the 12th. Can you read the text? So, Yeah, I'm, yeah I, I think there could have been earthquakes, disasters, or when did Mount Vesuvius blow up? Anyways, that step is uh, yeah, it's around. around that time, but anyway, people, I think it's probably a little bit after the destruction of the temple. Yeah, um, yeah I, just, I guess you would say that there wasn't a sequence necessarily. No, here, no. Yeah. Before, it could, be, it could be months, it could be weeks from that moment, right? It's actually, in the early passages of Acts, it happens right away, very quickly. You have Peter and John preaching in the temple, and there's instantaneous persecution. So he's basically saying, in the next weeks and months, before huge earthquakes and wars, you know, it, take, it takes a while for one country in that day and era to actually walk and invade another country kind of thing. I think he's saying, before that happens, there's going to be persecution. That's how, that's how I read it, anyway. And then, and then you have the whole, the whole interadvental period being characterized by these things. But the end is not yet. They're going to be thrown into prison within a couple, within, yeah. within months. Literally, literally a couple months. That's what it's going to be. So, yeah. um, Okay, number three. A picture of the end. A picture of the end. The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. The ultimate end, number four, is the coming of the Son of Man. 
And Jesus has already prophesied this. This is new information to Luke's readers. Addressing these themes again in Luke 21 is a major part of Luke's intent. He wants this to be very clear. Flip back to chapter 19, 41 to 44. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, uh, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. I think that's, a, that's an attribution of deity to himself. Luke 21, 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. And that's a reference to the book of Daniel and the abomination that causes desolation. It's used three times in that Old Testament book. It's a reference to when the Syrian general Antiochus Epiphanes outraged the Jews in 168 BC by erecting an altar to Zeus on the temple altar in Jerusalem, and he sacrificed a pig on it. He desecrated the temple of God. That's an abomination that causes desolation. And Antiochus also made practicing Judaism a capital offense. He outlawed possession of, and he burned all copies of the Old Testament and forbade the Jews from practicing circumcision or keeping Sabbath upon pain of death. This was the time of the Maccabean Revolt from 167 to 164 BC. Now, if you're reading through the book of 2 Kings, you're not going to find mention of the Maccabean Revolt. It happened after the Babylonian captivity in the intertestamental period, after the last book of the Old Testament was written. But Daniel prophesied about this period in remarkable detail. For 42 months, three and a half years, the Jews were fighting for their very existence because Antiochus was determined to crush all forms of Jewish worship. And what Jesus is referring to in Luke 21:20 is when the Roman armies lay siege to Jerusalem. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. And let those in the country not enter the city. Because Jesus knows that when the temple will fall, when the temple falls, the whole city is going to fall. So in part, this in part answers the disciples' question back in verse 7 about when the temple will be left in ruins. It will be during this terrible siege he's talking about now. And it's, it was truly dreadful. Josephus, the, the, the Jewish historian, and he tells us that one million Jews were killed. God's judgment was horrific. People were boiling their dead children for food. They were eating their own defecation. But they were still offering the morning and evening sacrifices. It never stopped. That's really something remarkable to think about. They kept sacrificial animals in reserve as they ate their own children in their own defecation. Because they were thinking, if we're faithful with keeping these morning and evening sacrifices, God will deliver us. And so Jesus here is warning the first century Christians, Jerusalem must be avoided at all costs during this time. Run, flee to the hills, because God is not going to deliver them. Why? Verse 22. For this is the time of punishment, or the days of vengeance, and fulfillment of all that has been written. Scripture details precisely this sort of punishment for the nation as a divine response to her covenantal unfaithfulness, 
That's why Luke speaks of punishment or vengeance and fulfillment of all that has been written. Read Deuteronomy 28. I'm not going to do it here, but it's all there. And Jesus himself had already prophesied in Luke 13, 34, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, and you were not willing. Look, your, ha- your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Covenantal unfaithfulness is something God does not ignore. You know, read the prophets in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. He doesn't ignore it. Luke 21, 23. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword. They will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. <clears throat> Jerusalem will, be, will become a trampled city, trampled on by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And I would argue that that phrase, which marks out a whole era of salvation history, suggests that a time will come again when ethnic Israel will be prominent in God's plan. What is this time of the Gentiles? Books galore have been written on it. It's hotly debated. Libraries of books have been written. But I think Paul's brief sketch of salvation history in Romans 11.25 is referring to this same thing. Romans 11.25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited, speaking to Gentiles. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, that is a whole Sunday school lesson unto itself. That's lesson number five in our plan. So we'll come to that later in more detail. I'll just say this. God wants us to understand from his word that this hardening of ethnic Israel, which has lasted these 2,000 years, Jews do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, right? It's not God's last word to his old covenant people. God wants us to know that. But Israel's restoration or engrafting back into the people of God, that's going to happen on God's timeline. There's a process here. Uh, God has first determined to save a certain number of Gentiles. Now, how many Gentiles that may be, we have no idea. Uh, I mean, we could still be living in the early church, right? Another 10,000 years before Jesus Christ returns. People look back on us and say, oh, yeah, Quinn lived in the early church period. Back in 2023, <laughs> they were barbarians back in those days. <laughs> um, but only when that numerical fullness is complete, when the full number of Gentiles has come in, will ethnic Israel's hardening be removed. Only then will ethnic Israel repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But do you see the sequence here? So Romans eleven twenty five. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Paul's not saying, I don't think every Jew without exception will be saved. He's speaking more generally, I think, of the corporate entity of ethnic Jews, a large representative number as they exist at a particular point in history, in time, in the future. And I'd argue that in Romans 11, Paul is telling us that when the full number of the Gentiles has come into the kingdom, a number predetermined by God, then there will be a massive shift. There will be a majority shift in Jewish outlook 
and all Israel will be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Which, if I understand 11.15 correctly, Romans 11.15, is also the trigger that ushers in the climactic end of human history. Paul writes, For if Israel's rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? That is the blessing, the greater riches mentioned back in 11.12, which is bestowed upon the world through Israel's reconciliation. Life from the dead, the resurrection, which occurs when Jesus returns in glory. So I just, I just I went very fast, or I just laid all my eschatological cards on the table. Do with it as you will, but we'll look at Israel and Romans 11 more fully in lesson number five. But now we come to the ultimate end, the coming of the Son of Man, Luke 21, 25 to 28. There will be signs in heaven, or signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars on the earth. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And this kind of language of signs in the sun, moon, and stars is is used all the time in the Old Testament. It's found in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Habakkuk. It's used symbolically in Scripture to refer to the historical end of a sinful nation's existence through divine judgment. But it's always coupled with the emerging dominance of a victorious kingdom. Peter uses the same language in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, quoting Joel 2. Because at Pentecost, there's a regime change that happens although King Jesus' rule has been contested for these 2,000 years. But what we're reading about here in Luke 21 is the return of the king of all creation. And this is the time when the old, sinful, rebellious creation, the kingdom of Satan, is utterly destroyed and King Jesus' eternal kingdom is consummated. So, brothers and sisters, the certain, the certain hope of our king's return should enable us to endure any affliction. See, that's why, it's, that's why he's talking about this. We may be a beleaguered, spat-upon, persecuted people. And just think what our brothers and sisters are enduring in all places all over the world. But we all have a certain hope that actually enables us to endure the very worst that Satan can throw at us. Because one day, history is going to wrap up. Tribulation, suffering, evil, and death are not a full stop to human history. Following the distress... Of the interadvental period, the Son of Man will return. Verse 27. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Who is that? Jesus. Say it loud and proud there. <laughs> it's Jesus. He's talking about himself. And he's referring to the great Son of Man figure of Daniel 7. Maybe you should turn. I'm going to turn your Bible to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And that expression, son of man, that's a Semitic way of saying a human being. You'll recall that all the other kingdoms in the book of Daniel are all beastly and inhuman, right? Remember, like a lion with eagle wings and a bear with ribs in his mouth and stuff. But here, the reins of power rest in the hands of a human being, as God meant a human being to be back in Genesis 1 and 2. But this Son of Man is also greater than any mere human being because to come on the clouds, that is a clear, clear reference to divine authority. This one, like a Son of Man, combines in one person both human and divine traits. Verse 13 of Daniel 7, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one, like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, God, 
and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him, this son of man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So, brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Jesus is the one who approaches the ancient of days, God the Father, and he is given God's authority, God's glory, God's sovereign power, and he is worshipped as God by all nations and all peoples. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Yes, at present there is conflict, there is cosmic war, between the evil forces of this world and God and his faithful people, there's, combat, there's, there's, there's conflict, but God wins. God wins, so be encouraged. God will humble the proud human kings, give everlasting dominion to the Son of Man, and we will reign with him forever. God wins. Verse 28 of Luke 21. When these things, that is the heavenly signs in verses 25 and 26, when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And redemption is being used here in a broad sense. It's not deliverance from the penalty of sin. It's deliverance from a fallen world. When the Son of Man appears, he will exercise his divine authority. The time of victory will be here. And this is the moment when the consummation of all that has been promised draws near, as the Apostle Peter declares in Acts 3.19.21, when he speaks of Jesus' return. I'll just read this to you. Acts 3.19. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through the holy prophets. That's a very eschatological sermon Peter's preaching there to Jews. <clears throat> Matthew 24, 26. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and the ends of heavens, the ends of the heavens. So do you hear that? Jesus is coming for his elect, those chosen in Christ Jesus from before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Those whom in love God the Father predestined for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. Jesus is coming to gather his elect. Those trophies of God's grace who have redemption through Jesus' blood and the forgiveness of sins. Those of us included in Christ when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. He is coming for his elect. Those who have believed, who have been marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, was a deposit guaranteeing our eternal inheritance. And notice, notice there is no mention here of the millennium. There's no battle of Armageddon. There's no new Jerusalem and no hint of when Jesus will return. The text is silent about all these things. Why is that? Because it's incidental. That's not to say it's all unimportant or untrue. But all these incidental matters yield to the preeminent truth of the power and glory of Jesus' future coming and the promise of our deliverance from a fallen world. That's where Luke aims his focus. The time of victory is here. Verse 29, he told them, look at the fig tree and all the trees. 
When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God, the consummated kingdom of God, is near. But bear in mind, all of us, bear in mind, near is a relative term. Right? God stands outside of time. A day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And verse 32 tells us that the present generation Jesus was speaking to did not pass away before experiencing all the signs of messianic pretenders, famines, earthquakes, and the fall of Jerusalem. But that was 2,000 years ago. Alyssa, kind of going to your question, I think. Even so, the time is near. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Creation itself is less permanent than the truth of Jesus' teaching. The end will come, just as he's described. And we can bank everything. We can bank our eternal soul on what Jesus is prophesying. He's God. He controls it all. And now we come to the central message of the second goal. Very quickly here. The sort of the so what of everything in this discourse and the close of this lesson. This text sort of has built-in application, all right? So it's very convenient. (laughs) The history of this planet has already been mapped out by the creator of time and space. So here's what's going to certainly happen. We just read about it. Heaven and earth will pass away, but these words of Jesus, they'll never pass away. So prepare, Christian. How? How? Be careful how you live. Universal judgment is coming. Be careful how you live. Verse 34, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly, like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the whole face of the earth. See, the test, of our, the test really of our eschatology, wherever we're at, <laughs> is our ethics. The test of our eschatology is our ethics. It's not our understanding of the millennium or the mysteries of Daniel and Revelation or the role of the state of Israel in the Middle East. It's our morality. It's our holiness. It's our sanctification. The test of our morality is our ethics. Jesus says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. What are those anxieties in your life? What are the anxieties of life? Your health or the health of a loved one? Your career, your family, your children, your lack of children, your marriage, your singleness, your investments, your reputation, your ministry. Jesus says if we're not careful, if we're not preaching eschatological truth to our heart, those things can weigh us down and move our heart away from God. Be ready for the return of Jesus, Christian, and fear nothing else. Be very careful not to get careless about the events that Jesus describes in this chapter. We're, not, we're in the last days of the war. Don't get taken out now by a sniper of unrepentant sin or a landmine of unbelief. Don't believe that the day of the Lord will never come or that it makes no difference how you live as you wait for Jesus' return. Verse 34b, that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the whole face of the earth. Universal judgment, right? So be ready. Live accordingly. Jesus' universal final judgment is real. It's going to happen. Beloved, when Christ does return at the end, his return will be sudden, it will be unmistakable, and it will be cataclysmic. It will mark the end of the universe as we know it. So here is Jesus' final exhortation, his final call to faithfulness in the midst of the pressure of the last days. 
Verse 36, be always on the watch since the time of Jesus' return is unknown and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen. That is, to avoid being harmed by the tumultuous, chaotic times and circumstances before Christ's return. Pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. That is, that you may be able to escape the final judgment and hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's 10.15. I, I, I don't know if I can take any questions. I'll take one question if there is, if there is anything. And that's, that, was pretty, uh, that was a lecture, so you've got a fire hose there. Angela? Make it a good one. It's the only one we got. Verse <laughs> 31. So he self-induces himself with the destruction of the temple. Even so when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. It's talking about the real like certainty that they, they should have been able to predict that. I know that we're basically drawing a parallel between the destruction of the temple and the end times. And yet, like, will these signs be as evident so we can we can't know certainly that you know Jesus is coming again? Like in Right, exactly, yes. Yeah. So he's saying the destruction of the temple mirrors the end times. It's like it's like that in many respects. He really zeroes in on that, but he's saying all throughout, this is gonna happen, this is gonna happen, this is gonna happen, the end is not yet. It's not yet. You know, he's actually saying expect long delay. And then we'll come to this, Lord willing, and this is depending on Pastor John's eschatology and my outlook on things, right? That there will be then be certain signs that really do proceed. You, actually, you do a check mark. Check mark there, check mark there, check mark there. It's not what you're reading in this text, though. It's not, okay, Russia just dropped a nuke on Ukraine, the end is nigh. You know, it's like that's not the case. Um, um, so you, you know where I'm kind of going to be going with that, where you could do, humbly speaking, more of a check mark. All right, so I'm, it's, it's the, the, the appearance of the man of lawlessness and the rebellion has to occur first, uh, the final tribulation and the salvation of Israel. So I'm going to go to that and argue that those are the things, humbly speaking, you would die out of. I don't like the idea of Chuck Bart. That sounds terrible, but you know what I mean. But don't go to here and say that. Yeah. Guys, we'll just leave it at that then. And then next week, um, what's next week? I can't remember what our one next week is. I think it's... Uh, I think it's rapture, right? The rapture and persecution, what that means. I say rapture in quotes because I don't hold to what a lot of people mean by rapture, but we'll look at that next week then we're going, okay? Thank you.